0: Last night, <clears throat> Ryan referred to intimacy a few times, even going so far as to imply that enlightenment is intimacy, ultimate intimacy. And what I'd like to do is explore that term uh, in regard to our practice here together, and I hope in a very practical way it's as useful for you as it has been for me for a number of years now. Because for me, uh, that term helps encompass and uh, comprehensively explain, makes sensible for me, uh, a huge amount of what we call practice. Um, to me, practice is the practice of intimacy. One way to put it, obviously, not the only way. Uh, And this intimacy ranges from the intimacy that's considered the supreme experience on our path. It includes intimacy in terms of your yogi job vacuuming It includes the relationship that you're in. It includes the weather. It includes everything. Um, Very briefly, if we start at the top, and we'll leave it there for a while, we'll come back to it. truth is intimate with form. It has to be. Otherwise, it would be hopeless for us. The truth is, couldn't be more intimate with the form, whatever form, but certainly the form that we're in. When we hear teachings of uh, samsara, the, the realm of ignorance, craving, the endless circle of unfulfillment, grasping and never quite coming up with anything really fulfilling. And nirvana, perhaps uh, that's a useful way to talk about it. But it sometimes leaves the impression that nirvana is somewhere out there. I don't know where that could be and that samsara is right here. But then there's also a statement that which confuses a lot of people, Samsara is nirvana. That's what I mean. Uh, they're one and the same. It's a question of whether the, what gets actualized. You hear it in, some of you are familiar with the Heart Sutra, when we hear form is emptiness and emptiness is form. <clears throat> when we say form is emptiness, that use of, the, of language perhaps helps us helps cure us of an attachment that we have to form. When we start treating form as if it has an intrinsic reality, an enduring, coherent, autonomous reality, we say, no, it's empty. So that perhaps softens our grip on form. But then we say, emptiness is form just so we don't get attached to emptiness, because emptiness is also empty. And here, we realize that they're inseparable. Form and emptiness are the same thing. They can't be without each other. The truth and ignorance can't be without each other. This is just language, of course. So, uh, I hope there'll be some hints (coughs) at this as we go on. I think this will take probably more than one evening. And it moves down into... uh, your yogi job, or pretty much anything else. Okay, just that's the background. In relationship, it's familiar to us. It's something that we hear over and over again. In fact, we say it, how much we all want intimacy. At times, relationship seems like a battleground. And uh, this is the hospital, actually. We come crawling into IMS. <laughs> <laughs> but we would like intimacy. We would have a rela- like to have a relationship with intimacy, but often what we feel is loneliness or separation, isolation. And that's, of course, uh, something I'm, I'm fairly certain is familiar to all of us. The way I'm using... Intimacy probably won't be as interesting as the way it's used on talk shows. (laughs) (laughs) But it will include what is being said (laughs) on talk shows. (laughs) Let's uh, bring it down to right here, that is... Perhaps it's uh, useful to say that intimacy is non-separation, at one, union, a uni- uh, unified experience. And you've heard some of the uh, little one-liners we give you from time you know, just be in the moment, and a lot of synonyms for that. We're basically saying the same thing over and over, slightly different ways, so we don't bore each other to death. But why do we say that, and we talk so much about grasping? What has helped me a lot, uh, and I hope will help you, is it sometimes confuses people. But if you hear it as skillful means, I think it will be. You'll get what I'm getting at, and if not, we'll be. I'll give you some concrete examples. There's a wonderful uh, tradition in Japan, still going strong. Um, a teacher who's now dead for a while named Sawaki Roshi. And uh, he has a unique way of talking about practice. Unique to me. I've never heard anyone talk about it this way. And I roar whenever I read some of the things he says, but also when you understand what he's driving at, it's so helpful. I'll give you a few extracts from some of his teachings. One, the person who became his main disciple when he was a young monk was taking a walk with him on the monastery grounds. And Sawaki Roshi apparently is a very confident, strong, uh, charismatic figure. And so this younger monk said to him, if I practice meditation hard for the next 10 years, will I have as much confidence and strength and uh, well-being as you? And Sawaki Roshi said, no. (laughs) He said, I was always like this. I was born this way.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Meditation didn't help me at all. You know, oh, oh, okay. Uh, he also left word that uh, when he dies, he, if, he's, if anyone was going to give him an epitaph when they bury his uh, cremation remains, it should be, here lies Sawaki Roshi, wasted his entire life on the cushion. <laughs> And then, again, in answer to a question about uh, sitting meditation, he answered, uh, sitting meditation, in Zen they call it Zazen. It's completely useless. But if you don't do this useless activity wholeheartedly, your life will be useless. That's giving you a little bit of a hint. What is what's going on here? What is he trying to do? I mean, why did we come here? if it's such a waste of time. He's really um, aiming his remarks at a characteristic that's not a u- unique to us in the West. It's always been true. this tendency for human beings to want to become something, become something better than what we already are, obviously emerging from a feeling that we're not so good right now. Something's off. We're too anxious. We're to this or to that, and so we project something out into the future which, if and when we can get to it, everything is going to be okay. And that tendency to get ahead of ourselves, to uh, strive, to become ambitious, to create something in the future for ourselves, prevents intimacy because it takes us right out of the moment. And what he's trying to do is uh, take the practice out of It's, in one sense, the most practical thing a human being can do. But if you become obsessed with the practicality of it, you limit it dramatically. Think about why you came here. Sometimes, you know, you don't know why you came here. I understand. Or you do, but you don't know what it is until you reflect. What was your intention? To reduce stress. Okay, it sounds like a worthwhile thing to do. But as you may know by now, sometimes retreats create much more stress. I want to be more peaceful. Have you been peaceful all the time? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to go home with a big bag full of fresh new insights. Turns out that any insight worth having is useful only in that moment. If you want to write it in a book and Bring it home with you, you know scribble it in and accumulate all your insights. It's OK, it has some value. But the insights that are insight meditation are non-accumulative. There's something that clarifies this present moment, and that's it, because if you use it again, it's dead. It's just memory. It's not, that's not what it's about anymore. You can't bottle it. If you could, it wouldn't be very worthwhile. I don't know. Maybe we could sell it if we could bottle it. (laughs) So it's only human for us to want things. Want to get enlightened. Want to be a very good yogi. Want to be uh, other things that people come here is to become more compassionate, to become kinder. You come with, let's say, a problem that you hope you can work out. Some relationship difficulty. Well, if I can get Nine days just by myself, I can really shine my light on my problem in my relationship and then clarify it. Or creativity. No question that if the mind gets quiet, you can be more creative in whatever realm you want to be creative in. And so we come here with that design. All of those things block what the practice is about because they pull us out of the present moment or they can If you're an advanced practitioner, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you really have grasped what Sawaki Roshi was talking about, then uh, it's a little different. And that's what I would like to emphasize as we we, uh, move through this understanding of intimacy to help you see uh, what we're getting at. And hopefully it can be a guide for the remainder of our stay together and beyond. Because I feel if we can practice this way during these nine days, the approach to living that is directly implied by this, uh, of, uh, this approach of, of practicing intimacy is completely, totally, and naturally transferable to whatever your life is like after you leave here. It's not something specialized. It's not esoteric or rarefied. It doesn't need special conditions, although of course, to begin to develop it. It's helpful to have some special conditions like this IMS. Okay, so uh, when we come here, if we want something, then we have an ideal and yet life keeps being just what it is. Have you noticed that? It just keeps insisting on being exactly what it is. And can it be anything but that? It can't. It's going to continue insisting on being just what it is. And we have agendas that are as creative as the number of minds we have in this hall as to what we want, how things should be, how they shouldn't be, what we want to become or what we want to leave behind here for the poor staff, leave all of our unfulfilled this and that. And yet there's a kind of a stubborn way in which life from moment to moment is just the way it is. Now, when we say that, it sounds kind of, yeah, right, how many times are they going to say that? We know life is just the way it is. But when you look closely, you see there are so many ways in which we don't um, attune ourselves. We're not living in accordance with the way it is. So there's always a gap between what is, just the actuality in a given moment, and how we want it to be, an ideal, how it should be. And in that gap, that gap is filled by suffering. And it's a huge burden to constantly want things to be other than the way they are. And yet we spend much of our life doing that. So this kind of re-education is an essential part of our practice. To me, it's the hardest thing to learn, although I don't want to make hard out of it. But let's say it's It's the most important thing to learn. It's not finally so much about methods or how long you can sit or how many hours of walking meditation you can do. If you can't be intimate with your experience in this moment, then none of the things that even that you want can flow, can, can really happen because we'll keep sabotaging ourselves. How do we do that? What are some ways of sabotage? Just some obvious ones, which probably you've already experienced, at least some of you have. These come from interviews. I'm not making them up. (laughs) Not only here, you know. A few years of interviews. Um, You've been sitting at home You're relatively new to the practice. An hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, you've read some of the books that have alerted you, opened you up, the instructions are clear, you've started to practice by yourself, never done a retreat before. And you see that there's something valuable in this stuff. Just following your breath, you can get pretty calm and happy sometimes just doing this, and it's free, nothing to it. So then we assume, well, if I come nine days, let's see, multiply that by, <laughs> uh, wow, I can hardly imagine how calm and wise and compassionate I'm going to be when I get back, if this is only from an hour in the morning or an hour in the evening. But then you get here, and you're doing fine at home, and you can't even find your nostrils, let alone the breath. <laughs> or while you're here. The sitting is going in a certain direction. We have what we call a good sitting. Whenever you hear someone say, I just had a good sitting, it's like an alarm goes off in me, (laughs) right? That means you're gonna have a bad sitting. (laughs) They go together. (laughs) Okay. So you had a good sitting. And then you can't wait to get to your little cushion. Because if you had a good sitting, the next sitting is going to be a better sitting. And it isn't. It's terrible. It's awful. You hate being here. And you want to leave. Well, wait a minute. You just thought it was the most fantastic practice and the teachers are just wonderful people, All got all teary-eyed when you looked at the Buddha. And now you want to pack your bags. It's just, it was 45 minutes ago, that's all. What happened? life didn't behave the way I wanted it to. It was supposed to get better. It was supposed to go like a scientific American. The charts, you know, it experiments, it goes up like that. The treatment gets better and better and it goes, our practice goes more like this. (laughs) Let me give you a a sense of what I mean by intimacy. I'm just going to Uh, Pluck a few random examples, that things that come to mind. He said intimacy applies to the vacuum cleaner, to vacuuming. What in the world does he mean by that? Does he mean you crawl inside the vacuum cleaner while you're doing it? Let's say a yogi job is vacuuming. And you hear us say, and you will continue to hear us say, and I uh, often ask people in interviews what your yogi job is, and I try to poke around and find out uh, how you're relating to it. If you start to vacuum, we, well, we encourage you to do things wholeheartedly, right? You've heard that. 100% vacuuming mind. Just total, just vacuum, for goodness sakes. Okay, But when you approach the vacuum cleaner and you start to do it, have you noticed that sometimes, I mean, you can get a spotlessly clean job done and you can not be here. I mean, we, we just are so good at being automatic. We know how to do that. And so why wouldn't you be here? What would intimacy with a vacuum cleaner be? It's not that you try, as an act of will, try to unify yourself so much with the task. As as you start to do it, and we all know how to. you push a button and then it makes a sound. And you push it around and you look for... Things that need to be sucked up.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And while you're doing it, watch the mind. You'll see that you're continuously separated from it. With, with moments of where there's no separation between you and what's happening. Things that might separate us from vacuuming. Here I am, full professor at, uh, at Yale, and they got me vacuuming. <laughs> There's no respect, don't they know? Didn't they read my interview,
1: my interview form? Well,
0: oh, as soon as I finish this, I can take a walk around the loop. I just hate vacuuming. Don't you just hate it? I hated it when I was a kid. Remember when I was growing up, my, my parents always made me vacuum, and, and I would go on and on. The meantime, the rug's clean, everything's finished. No one was, you weren't there. There was separation. So the practice of intimacy is beginning to see how we separate ourselves from what we're doing. It's not such manual labor. It's not kind of uh, exerting will to make ourselves vacuum. But just start in, start vacuuming, and begin to notice what separates you from what you're doing. So it's a gentle practice, too. And little by little, you begin to see that uh, we have our moments when we're totally there we're just vacuuming. And actually, those can be very happy moments. The truth is, it doesn't have very much to do with vacuuming. It may have nothing to do with vacuuming. Or maybe a little. Some years ago, here's another example that comes to mind. Someone who had been doing a practice like this for quite a few months, one day came running into our practice group that we had in Cambridge very excited and happy. This person's a cook. And said, I finally understand what's being said and what I've been reading about. I was just chopping the broccoli. It's part of my job. And I've been doing that for 10 years. And for the first time, it was so joyous. I was just completely at one with chopping the broccoli. It was so I was so alive. Does that mean we all have to go and get some broccoli right now? That that's where <laughs> that... Awakening is in broccoli. It has nothing to do with broccoli. It has to do with, finally, this person's attitude um, opened up. They opened up to their experience as it was, without adding or subtracting, without uh, getting ahead of themselves or behind themselves. They were in the present moment. They were fully in the present moment. Um, There's another way of uh, looking at this. In order to do this, in order to, to really practice, that it's the practice it, uh, is about direct experience. The essence, of the heart of the practice is direct experience, raw and naked experience of life as you live it. Let me give you a sense of well, what I'm getting at is how we don't do that, another, another, coming at it from another direction. You know, raw food, any of you raw food fattists? You like raw food? It's supposed to be very good for you if you can digest it. So raw food is food that's in its natural state. It hasn't been heated, it hasn't been steamed, or fried, or sauteed, or boiled, or broiled, or pressure cookered, or anything. It's just raw, just the way it is. And then we cook it, right? We do something to it. We apply heat. And not only do we apply heat, but we season it. And we do all kinds of things which makes it wonderful and tasty. Now, this analogy is not perfect because uh, the more I say it, the more I like the fact that we're cooking the raw thing. (laughs) So I may have talked myself out of of a metaphor, I don't know. (laughs) What we do is we cook our experience with ideas and concepts and theories and explanations. So that the original experience, just the isness of it, the, uh, just the simple breath, the simple pain in the knee Even P-A-I-N is already polluting it. Pain is not a good word. As soon as I say pain, no good. And it's already gotten a certain veneer on it, a certain coloration. We're already relating to it in a certain way and maybe even not experiencing it directly. Because once we name it, it's as if we know it. And so what we're doing typically is we cook our experience. And the practice is an attempt to come back to the original experience before it was conceptualized, idealized, explained away, theorized, and so forth. The practice is about getting in touch with our experience in a very naked and raw way. Direct, intimate, And that sounds good if it's, let's say, a man or a woman who you're in love with. I like that. But what if we say intimate with loneliness? Wait a minute, that's going a little too far. I don't want to become intimate with loneliness. So now I'm going to something that I see it interests you more, this one. It should, because we spend a lot of our life in and out of this one. Let's take any of the mental states that come up in our practice and they come up in our life. Let's say loneliness comes up. Again, the word isn't as important as it's pointing to something which I'm certain that all of us in this room have tasted. If you're human, you've tasted loneliness. Also, unless you're very different than my experience and the people that I have talked to, we hate it, we do not like, to feel lonely. We'll do anything we can to not feel lonely. We'll escape in any number of ways from feeling lonely. If it comes up at where we have more resources or more options, like at home, we can keep busy. If we just do enough things, if we're in crowds enough, if we read enough, if we uh, get famous enough, if we make enough money, if we we can lose ourselves in anything. Even the sangha can be misused. So we can avoid coming to terms with of, with how lonely we are. It can work. Not too well, but it can work for a while. You, you can, In a way, we, we know when it's coming. We pick up a book and we read it. And we're okay. It's a good book. No sooner do we put the book down, and there it is. Can't drop your guard for a second. So we have our moments where uh, it comes up and looks at us and makes its presence felt. And it's painful. It's not intimate. Now, here, intimacy is useful in terms of it's close, it's intimate with understanding. To me, the deep kinds of understanding cannot happen, the deep insights, without intimacy. Let me give you an example of what I mean and use loneliness. In using loneliness as an example, please understand that you could put in anything else that you wish any kind of fear, anger, boredom. These are the kinds of states that come up and in a few days the instructions to the practice will change and you'll be encouraged to directly become mindful of them while breathing in and breathing out. We're kind of edging towards that. To really understand loneliness... You have to commune with it. You have to enter into communion with it. Uh, here, there's a basic, I think, misunderstanding that many of us have. Some of it, I think, is inevitable at the beginning. Uh, it's very difficult to understand what this mindfulness is all about. And typically, I think what we think it is, or in effect, it is, we can't help ourselves, um, it's safe. The mindfulness is very safe. It's as if we uh, we were going to apply it to loneliness. One part of ourselves separates itself from the loneliness, and it's called the meditator or the observer. And it gets a nice, powerful pair of binoculars, and it goes way up in some mountain somewhere, and it looks down at the loneliness. Yeah, mindfulness, lonely, lonely. And that protects us a bit. We distance it. We distance this from ourselves. And we feel it. And that can be helpful too. We're detached. And at the beginning, uh, it's very difficult. We're not really equipped uh, to, perhaps, to enter into communion with loneliness, which is very different. And here I'm using that as an aspect of mindfulness. It's not different. Because uh, my understanding of mindfulness is that it is a kind of participatory observation. That is, uh, you fully become one with what you are observing. The awareness, the wakefulness, is in the midst of what's happening. That means you have to allow the loneliness to blossom, to be full-blown. But in the midst of it, total wakefulness. We're working towards that. What we know is, if we were to fully surrender... And if you recall, we've been using, uh, suggesting to you if we can learn to surrender to the breathing, to just let the breathing fully be the breathing. And in a sense, you become one with the breathing. Finally, that's the direction of this phase of the practice. The mind, the breath, and the body become unified. If you can surrender to the breathing, perhaps you can sur- surrender, learn how to surrender to states that are much more highly charged, frightening, powerful, which usually overwhelm us. At the beginning, perhaps it's more realistic to look at it with binoculars. Maybe it's inevitable that that's how we have to do it. But more and more, I think what you'll find is that the practice of mindfulness is the practice of intimacy. It means allowing whatever it is that is in the moment, whatever is, to allow, allow your sensitivity to fully experience it without cooking it, to really feel it. However, uh, you might say, well, how is that different from just being tremendously lonely? We've all had times when we've just ached with loneliness. But there we've been lost in it. The practice is not advocating that. We already know how to do that. That's why we don't want to have anything to do with it because the few times that we've allowed that to happen have been very painful and have not been beneficial necessarily. Maybe we've become a little bit more compassionate compassionate or humble when we've suffered. But we don't see that as too fruitful, and maybe it isn't. But the day can come where we learn, uh, where through practice, uh, I myself don't see, to, to whatever degree I'm doing what I'm telling you about, uh, it's not like I, I came out of my mother's womb able to do it. It came from, it comes from years of practice and gaining experience and familiarity with unpleasant states until finally you begin to see that everything is workable. In order for it to be workable, it's helpful if the mind has some stability. Otherwise, if it's all over the place, how can you do what I'm saying? And so that's part of why. We spend so much time on just the breath as an exclusive object to help prepare the mind, to calm it down, to steady it, to give it a kind of uh, move in the direction of it being unwavering in its ability to stay with an object. And then little by little, uh, we bring that mind that's been helped in this way, prepared, re educated, gradually so that it familiarizes itself with all the different ways of the mind, including loneliness, which is just one state that comes up. The end of loneliness comes about through communion with it, full openness to it. Not acceptance. It can be helpful. For example, let's say you feel very lonely. and You've heard this talk and you've been tremendously inspired about how wonderful it would be to come into intimate contact with loneliness. (laughs) A skillful device is to kind of, and you can use this throughout the retreat from time to time, just to reflect on the words, well, this is the way it is. That can help you uh, stop always running and reacting, uh, but actually to contemplate whatever is there. Eventually, the words are not necessary, but just from time to time, a reflection that this is the way it is. We'll have more examples of that. Um. We would all love to say goodbye to loneliness. But we don't want to say hello. First, it's just bad manners. First we have to say hello, and then if we can fully allow it to bloom, and I'm using this term intentionally, bloom, blossom, flower. Why is he using that? That's okay if it's a child flowering or a flower flowering, blooming, or a person blossoming. You see that they have good therapy or good yoga teaching or something like that. Why would you want loneliness to flower? All that is, is just as we're learning how to allow the breath to fully be what it is, can you allow this to be fully what it is? If you can, you can allow it out and you can be with it every step along the way, fully with it as it emerges, as it crests and as it falls away, which it will. It's an impermanent mind state, which lacks self. It's empty. It doesn't have a substantial meaning. It's there because of certain conditions. It comes back, but if we can do that, um, we begin to learn something. Do do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, is that okay? Uh, If you don't feel like feel ready to to approach something like loneliness in this way, don't. Uh, we're not trying to, uh, and many of you are new, we're not trying to rub your face in anything. Part of the skill in practice is for you to guide your own practice and to know what you can take on and what you can't. Um, but it's not repression. For example, should loneliness come up, come up and you realize you're not ready for it, then you bow to it. Thank you very much. You're not repressing or denying it. You simply you switch to the breath instead, knowing full well that it's there. And the day comes where you can return to it. And little by little, it becomes manageable, workable. And if you can let it flower, that is, fully express itself, what it does is it liberates itself. It keeps being alive because we're struggling with it. If you can fully allow it out and meet, and meet it, shine the light of awareness into it, What happens is, awareness is a very powerful energy. Don't underestimate it, even though it's invisible. I mean, where is it? And what it does is, it transforms the energy that's frozen in the form of loneliness. That energy is released, and now it's free and available to you. On a retreat, You may have already had small examples of that, that when you are aware of something, it's problematic aspect dissipates itself and everything's fine and you suddenly feel you have a little bit more energy. When that happens, please reinvest that energy back into the practice. Continuity of practice is everything. It's so important. We're all here together to try to help that happen because the tendency is to take a break, skirt it, evade it, and so forth. Um, I think uh, maybe that's enough for tonight. Give me a moment. Uh, I don't want to start something that I can't finish, and this will take more than this evening. I also want to give you some brief reflections on a a sutta of the Buddha uh, having to do with uh, why the present moment. What, What is this? Obsession that Buddhists have with the present moment. Yes, let me leave you with this another example because I know, especially those of you who are new. uh <clears throat> perhaps haven't had enough experience in working the physical pain and I'll leave you with this I'm going to give you a fair number of examples and I hope that helps to make this concrete and they'll be quite varied I hope the ones given already are by the way to finish up loneliness often what we do to avoid the full experience of loneliness is, especially those of us who have education and intellectual bent and have simply read every book ever written on loneliness, is we have these elaborate explanations when loneliness comes up and they may be exactly very convincing and even correct, in quotes, from whoever, Rallo May, who I, I'm not, a, you can see I'm dated, my,
1: <laughs>
0: whoever the going, you know, Superstar is about loneliness. Uh, from this point of view, that's, that's uh, an avoidance. So that we have beautiful and brilliant explanations which keep us from the direct experience. The reason I mention it is crucial. See, I think this is true. I think that most of us, if not all of us, uh, it takes quite a while, we do not have faith in the immense value of what direct experience can produce in life. We definitely have much more confidence in a brilliant explanation. It's much more fun, for one thing. And it takes a while before you really understand that there's nothing more valuable than directly connecting with your experience in a given moment. Because what comes out of that uh, is firsthand. It's you. It's a different level, a different order of intelligence altogether. You can know everything that's been written about loneliness and remain lonely, surrounded by your books on loneliness. Sorry. (laughs) My books, too. I threw them all out, though. (laughs) I'm just trying to give you a sense of the nuances of this, that is how subtle it is. With pain. Let's say you have a physical pain in your knee or lower back, wherever it is. And I know that perhaps all of us, if you have a body and you sit on a retreat like this, you have pain. I don't know if there's anyone who doesn't at all. Well, one thing that you can do, and we've already hinted at it, and in a few days we'll be doing it more directly, but you can begin to do it now, is you bring full awareness to that physical pain. You experience it in an uncooked way, the rawness of it. Again, it's not, it's not the pain, it's just the throb, 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 or whatever it is. I'm trying to, I have to use language. If you've tried to do this, you know that at least sometimes it's helpful, but you also know that it's not always so easy to do it. If you keep at it and keep an open mind, what you'll begin to see is this process to cook raw experience start to happen. That is, the mind will come in and it will tell you what's happening. You already know what's happening. There's throb, 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 but the mind is gonna come in and tell you what's happening. The first stage of gangrene is coming. And this is Barry, they don't have good hospitals out here, It's so we're out in the sticks. <laughs> My insurance doesn't cover me here. I mean, what am I going to do? Then you have torment. It goes from pain to torment. Because the mind has now cooked it. It's cooked it in its own juices. And what's come out of it is something uh, inconceivably worse than, than the, the, the raw pain itself. Let me give you an image that has helped me, and perhaps it will be useful to you. And then I will go back to something more important, like walking meditation. Uh, you know, if you, let's say if you uh, you uh, like basketball and you know all about all the players, you know the sport inside and out. You yourself have played it, or you have watched it, and you you love it, and you know what's going on. And you have a huge, beautiful screen, TV screen, and you're watching it. The uncooked version of it would be with no announcer. That it's just pure basketball, raw basketball. Basketball, the game in its naked sense. The players are right in front of you. You know the rules. You understand what's going on. You don't need another person who's paid a huge amount of money to tell you what's going
1: on. <laughs>
0: but you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> okay, now, if this person is from the home team, they put a different kind of different condiments... Into the in the cooking they're doing, and what you it colors it just slightly. If it's from the visiting team, it's also a little bit different. And if you're not aware of that, finally, what you experience is the a, a dependent arising that happens from the pure sensations plus these trained announcers who know just how to use language and emotion and affect uh, to create a certain uh, a certain effect in us. And maybe it's more exciting. We've, you know, we love some of these announcers. They're, I'm not against them. It's just that, let's say, if you suddenly you turn them off and then you're back to pure basketball. Then you turn it back on and then you have some kind of other mishmash going on of your experience, the raw experience being cooked. Think of physical pain that way. If you can really land on it and just experience it directly, it's one thing. And I would suggest that's what we start to do and then if, there's, if there isn't alertness to how the mind slips in on it, and the mind would be the commentator, the sports announcer, who's telling you what's going on now. And it's usually not good news. <laughs> it's never good news. Okay. And so out of that comes torment. Now, if you begin to see that, more and more you're able to set that to rest. And then you just have to deal. It's still not pleasant to have pain in your knee, but it's not torment, either. It's manageable. It's workable. Can we have a few moments of, of silence? If of any relevance, struck you as possibly being of some use, bring it up and reflect on it for a few seconds. And then let's all just let it all go. And come back to the immediacy of just first one step and then the next step. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit